Hello and welcome to the Hopitarian show. I am Shane. You can follow me at the Hopitarian on Twitter. And also you can follow our Odyssey channel at the Hopitarian show. Uh, so yeah, welcome to the first episode of the, uh, of the rebranded show. We appreciate you being here. And my first guest is Amos Joseph. How are you doing, sir? Good. Uh, actually, I mean, since we're going to be talking about, we're talking about, uh, my real name is Amos Wapskowski. Um, <laughs> always just went by Amos Joseph ever since 2017 ish when people were scared of doxing. So Amos Joseph is just my first and middle name. I've used it for so long that I go by both, but you know, so. All right. Well, go ahead and let people know uh, who you are and uh, we'll get started after that. Well, um, well, I've obviously known Shane here since uh, 2017. Something yeah. Like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if you guys, if you look back, I uh, actually was the, um, guy that did your guys's wedding and been kind of connected with you guys ever since mm-hmm. um we're like what i don't know probably the only mm-hmm. half asian hoppers in the entire liberty movement um probably not but uh <clears throat> i'm uh out here in minnesota i'm part of the libertarian party of minnesota uh last year i was um on their executive committee basically the ruling board of the party uh, this year, they're kind of looking at some other stuff to have me um, do, base, possibly become the communications director for the party. I've also done, I work with people on the national level. I've done the, um, uh, last year, the Libertarian Party was doing regional like trainings for the candidate, for people that were uh, working with affiliates, basically like state parties and also political campaigns. I went out and I attended one of the trainings and then they called me to have, to actually um, teach part of one. So I was teaching, um, doing the training for people wanting to learn about communications, basically social media, press releases, like communications basically. Um, And then of course, uh, I mean, through that I've, I've had developed connections with people both on the LNC, which is the national committee for the party and of course, people around the country, um, both staff, other party members, stuff like that. So try to keep my, I guess, uh, stay in the loop on whatever's going on around our country uh, with whether it's what, you know, what the state conventions are doing, what the part, what's happening in different parties, stuff like that. So I think someone actually had me on a podcast and said I'm a Libertarian Party insider, which sounded really weird. But <laughs> it's a very limited job, I can tell you that. <clears throat> well, I mean, it doesn't pay yet, so. <laughs> um. So yeah, we'll just go ahead and uh, kind of just get right into what we're going to be talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I guess you sort of created a little bit of a. Uh, a disturbance in the force, as you can say. Yeah. Um, so I guess to kind of get into it, you wrote, uh, I guess, an op-ed, editorial, whatever you want to call it, where you're kind of giving your thoughts on China and Taiwan because yep. 
uh, as most people I'm sure know, Russia had is doing its thing with Ukraine. And so in your eyes, and I'm sure a lot of other people's eyes, China and Taiwan seems to kind of be the next logical step in terms of a country wanting to, I guess, take over whatever term you want to use uh, a piece of land that they feel is theirs or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so in, in your article, you say, uh, and this was published in the, uh, the, the newsletter, I believe it was right. Yeah. It's called the Liberty pledge. It's, it goes out to the majority of donors to the national party. So, I mean, I was guessing it's somewhere between fourteen and 15,000. It's probably less, actually, now that I think more about it. But there's a certain level of donating per year that gets you this. Um, sometimes it looks like an actual like newspaper kind of style. Sometimes it's like this, where it's just a fold-out. But, yeah. So. Okay. So, to kind of, we're going to go through the article and then kind of, because I have a few questions here that I feel maybe um, you, you can kind of elaborate on or answer or maybe kind of uh, get a, give a little more detail on what you kind of mean in your article here. So, real, if I could, because I know we, there's one thing I want to make real clear about this. So, okay. this article is solely my own opinions, my own thoughts. The fact that it was in an, in an actual newsletter was... Now, I gave permission to the party to do what they want with it. Cause I wanted, I, I wrote it and actually had someone um, look it over, proofread it. I wanted to look as best as I could. Cause I was like, I feel these thoughts need to be shared, but it's solely from me to the, to the movement, to the party. I posted it a bunch of places on, on social media. Um, and then I just sent it to some people I knew on the, the LNC. They said, can we send it to our communications people, have them look it over. And I said, sure. I said, could they publish it? Yeah, if they want to. So this is an entire month after I initially like posted about it, and I, d I wasn't expecting it. And actually, I didn't even know it was going to be in the newsletter. I found out through other people that it was out there. So, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. So at the beginning of this article, you kind of introduce yourself and, and who you are uh, in, in terms of um, who you are in, in the Libertarian Party. Uh, so... I was, again, I'll, I'll read from your article here. Uh, so you say that I was like, you were born in Minnesota and you moved to Taiwan in the late nineties and your mother's side of the family was Taiwanese, but their ancestry is Chinese due to them fleeing from China during their civil war with the KMT or the Chinese nationalist party from the 1920s to 1940s. Yep. Some of my family members fought the communists in China while the others escaped to modern day Taiwan. In 2006, I moved back to Minnesota and attended middle school through high school. So you kind of give a little background on, on your family history and your background and all that. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll move on. Ever since I was old enough to understand much of anything, let alone politics, I could see that China was more than just a neighbor to the West that spoke the same language that we Taiwanese did, Mandarin Chinese, the, the most widely spoken language in the world. China was a threat to Taiwan because, in reality, the Civil War never truly ended. Taiwan is an independent and sovereign nation with its own government, elections, and money. China has refused to acknowledge this fact since the 40s. China regularly conducts military exercises, 
by flying near and sometimes within Taiwan airspace and is never shy about reminding Taiwan that they're a rogue province of the mainland. Yep. And then you, you talk about how you grew up in Taiwan and they had uh, air raid drills that were similar to American tornado and fire drills and all that stuff. And you kind of explain that again, people can read this themselves. I'm not going like, to read every single thing mm-hmm. here. Um, okay. So the next paragraph as libertarians, we might see this as propaganda to fuel fear, to fuel fear and maintain control over the population. And you may be right on some of that. However, how much power and control is truly gained over a small Island when the explanation of preparing for an invasion makes more sense. This brings me to my concerns and criticisms of my fellow libertarians and really American libertarians commenting on the issue of Taiwan and China. So we're going to get into that topic here. And so this is, uh, again, kind of reading out, you, you say that like, you don't believe that U.S. should intervene militarily uh, when it comes to a, uh, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. But you do say that it's like it's a it's a real and and uh, an actual thing that could possibly happen. It's not a matter of if, but when. So, can you kind of talk about that in terms of what, in your mind, you feel uh, other libertarians within the party, or just or who are in the party, but they have kind of the same uh, disagreements with what where you're coming from uh, in terms of a, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. So a lot of people are comparing uh, the Taiwan Chinese thing to Ukraine because it's very similar. But um, some people actually believe it's closer to North and South Korea because it's um, because there was an actual ending of the Soviet Union. Ukraine being an independent nation actually recognized the re like reigniting the conflict is outside of that. Whereas um, North and South Korea technically did not end their war until very recently. Uh, during the Trump administration, um, not not to say whether it was you know hit to him credit to him or anything, but people realize that actually the war, <coughs> excuse me, the war never it, the Korean War technically did not end until like twenty eighteen or nineteen. I think I'm trying to remember, I'm I'm drawing a blank on the exact year, so try not to quote me on that. But the same thing happened here. Um, so. In the early uh, 20th century, China actually had multiple factions within it. There wasn't one unified country. There was the nationalists, the communists, and actually a few other groups that were then there too. The communists were rising to power, taking over more and more of the country. Nationalists essentially were resisting them. Um, And Taiwan, I, I, I thought Taiwan was part of, it was part of China but not the PRC, the People's Republic of China. They rose from, I think, like the north uh, west of the country, kind of spreading across. Um, Mao Zedong was basically a peasant farmer that cr- rose up and had created this revolution um, that then had a conflict with nationalists. They retreated to Taiwan um, and then just resided there, formed a government, electing presidents they have their own money they have their own military um and it's just yeah there was no treaty signed there was no hostile hostilities just kind of stopped um i mean i mean granted if you're considering the hostilities now of the military exercises the propaganda that kind of they go against each other um very recently i think few actually 
in the last decade, tensions kind of rose again where they're both kind of flying around in their, each other's airspace. Some ships are going through uh, the Taiwan Strait. Um, even uh, China put out a... Um, uh, like we we we've seen like military recruit ads on TV here in the U.S. like Army Strong or the few the proud the Marines. China did a, a an ad that was had the song playing in the background of it was a song about long lost brothers, and they had these fighter jets flying around, and there was these like shots of scenery of like countryside, and this was not Chinese countryside. This was Taiwanese countryside in their footage and they're just flying around in these fighter jets. There's a song playing about long lost brothers. Kind of like, come back, Taiwan. You're our brothers, right? And then Taiwan was like, you know, I don't know if we can swear on the here. We're we're good? Okay. And <laughs> Taiwan comes around pretty much with a fuck you. And they have uh, a military ad that's basically like straight up like an army strong commercial. You know, Taiwanese military is ready for whatever is going to happen. We are ready day and night, 24 hours a day. And it's just all this footage of them, like, doing military exercises. And a lot of their uniform and the way they do things is very reminiscent of American military because they get a lot of their training from former military advisors. Um, So, like, the uniform, just the way they operate, even, like, they look like American soldiers. There's very slight differences in how they look, but they're basically kind of like, we're ready for whatever's happening. Kind of like, we saw you, we know what you're doing, and we're ready. It's just a fighting of propaganda machines. So, yeah, it it never really ended, the war. So what are some things that um, other libertarians are saying about an invasion of Taiwan from China that you kind of take offense to? Take offense. Ooh. Uh, not initially, it was definitely take offense because I have, I, I personally still have family there. Um, uh, back in 2013, my dad had passed away, and my, my uh, mom and my three siblings moved back to Taiwan to live with family. And then as they graduated school, they came back to the States to attend college or just, you know, basically kind of have their life. Um, I think my, my sister is the only one that's gone to college so far. Rest of us are working, living here in Minnesota. My mom still lives back there, as does an entire side of my family. And the moment that this question came up, my immediate thought was looking to the Libertarian Party and just the liberty movement as a whole. And I started seeing posts from the Libertarian Party social media that just seemed kind of pandering, like, oh, Taiwan's a country. Buy our Taiwan is a country buttons. And then I started seeing some commentary from, um, I think it was libertarianism.org, Libertarian Institute, a couple groups, Libertarian Institute, antiwar.com, uh, the Mises Institute, the Mises Caucus. A lot of these groups were all just kind of the big think tanks and groups in the movement were all giving their take on it. Some of them we're definitely closer to kind of what I tend to agree with some of them a little further away. The big ones that I had against was, was basically like the idea that the, the threat of invasion is exaggerated that, you know, and I was like, well, no, it's very real. It's like, you know, not to be like the hipster of, of this, of the idea, but I knew it before it was cool to talk about it. Like I grew up in Taiwan since the late late 90s 
by about 2001 or two, I, when I was just old enough to really understand, um, you know, regular radio broadcast talking about the, you know, certain intelligence reports about like how there were 500 ballistic missiles aimed at Taiwan, ready to go. Um, how, you know, of course we always hear about nowadays you can actually find like when a military exercise is happening in Taiwan airspace or in their waters. Um, we heard that all the time on the radio and of course the air raid drills. And so it was a personal thing for me and to see libertarians that were dismissive of the idea or just not taking this, the idea seriously, um, just kind of, you know, kind of like an armchair quarterback, like looking at a game, like looking at a football game so far away that they don't know a lot of the rules of, don't know the customs of, commentating. And so I was hearing a lot of these these voices on the issue, and, and then there were even other things, like there was um, someone that said, like, they think the Uyghur Muslims concentration camps are probably an overblown issue. It's not as bad as it is. Like, all of this just kind of, you know, Taiwan being invaded by China, the Uyghur Muslims concentration camp, like, a lot of this stuff was just a ploy by the military-industrial complex to essentially push an agenda to increase our presence in the Pacific. Now, I don't want an increased presence in the Pacific. I'm not saying America needs to just go in there, guns blazing, and, and kick China around and keep them in line. But I'm also not going to go and say, oh, it's not a big deal. It's all just a PSYOP, right? It's all just propaganda. Now, granted, everything is propaganda. I get that. But it's like there's very real threats that Taiwan faces, and there's very real atrocities that are happening in China. A lot of that, it's not just, oh, it's all just to get us to rally with Taiwan. Now, I love it when people support Taiwan and they want to say, like, yeah, Taiwan is an independent country. I get that. But I also don't want the U.S. intervening. But it's still a very real thing. Like, this is my frustration is I'm anti-interventionist and I'm anti-war. But my second home is under threat. And people who are supposed to be, you know, my my peers are dismissing that. And it just, you know, I'm just being honest. It pissed me off. So I had to kind of cool off a bit, then write this article, had some people review it, look it over, so it's not like sounding like I'm entirely frustrated. Granted, I do say I'm frustrated in the article. And I do make some comments in there. It's a very rare moment that I would actually show that much on paper of like make a comment that is essentially not 100% professional, we'll just say, which I think you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's actually a, a good uh, segue into kind of the next thing that I wanted to get into, and that would be why does China want a small island nation of Taiwan so badly? Uh, so I'll go ahead and read again from your article. A question that has frequently come up in my conversations the last few weeks regarding Taiwan is, why does China want a small island nation of Taiwan so badly? Taiwan is an economic powerhouse in Asia that produces over 50% of the world's semiconductors, but is only 0.3% of the land area of China, and China only produces 6% of the world's semiconductors. 
So it should seem self-evident to most that China would want Taiwan for their economy, right? Not necessarily. As I stated earlier, China sees the civil war as unfinished with the KMT running off to Taiwan to form the rogue nation. In Chinese culture and across most Asian cultures, there is a concept of honor and what we call saving face in China's case. With China winning the civil war over the mainland, they see losing Taiwan to the KMT as losing face or a loss of honor and an embarrassment to their legacy. The only way to regain honor is by taking back Taiwan. So is that in your eyes, is that the only reason that they want Taiwan or are there like other reasons that they would want Taiwan? So, is it like, is it kind of like a, uh, you know, like it was like a, like a branch off we want, we want to have that branch back or something like that. So it, there's, there's a couple ways to look at it. First off um, <clears throat> here in the U S our political interests are in a four-year cycle, president after president after president, mainly presidents and, of course, Congress and all that. But And, and even in our culture, we tend to be very we, – we have these cycles that all happen basically within the lifetime, within a generation. Every few years, interests change, not just politically but socially and culturally. In Chinese culture, and really because of now it's this you know totalitarian – it's not really as communist as they claim to be. It's more like authoritarian, totalitarian than anything, you know, with the social credit system and all that. But <clears throat> that is more in line with the cultural values. Chinese culture um, is more communal, um, is more, uh, it looks more on a larger scale of the society, the civilization, the country, the people. Um, and it because of that, it looks on larger time scales. So while we have the, um, you know, we have our like, you know, you can, you know, the American dream is very much just it can happen just like that. Like you can invent something, you can come up with a new idea, you could have some revolutionary thing, and bam, 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 you're rich. You do you do these things. And then, of course, the generation, like, you know, someone like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk comes along, makes all this money, but their wealth doesn't really, like, pass on that much because it's very much generation to generation. Things can change so quickly. Whereas with them, they're looking at it. Like, China, as it stands today, the CCP government is not very old, but China is a 5,000-year culture maybe even more um it's multiple governments multiple civilizations kind of right well multiple sorry governments monarchies empires kingdoms rising and falling you know there's like the three kingdoms thing anyone who's played dynasty warriors kind of sees like you know these different things happening um you have the Qing dynasty the first emperor to unite china and actually um make all of china speak and write the same language um, which is modern day Mandarin. Um, but it's just this longer time scale. So they're looking at the legacy of China, which is a, a unified China, which includes the island. So when we're looking at like the economic part, so we're, you know, us as Americans and just really in the Western way of thinking, we're looking at the economics, the, you know, sort of quarter to quarter changes that can happen, the president to president changes. 
but they're looking at the long game and trying to find because they've been playing this like it's like i've said since the end of active conflict ever since the new government was formed in taiwan they're looking at it like okay we got to get back in there we've overextended ourselves we've conquered china the mainland and we can't get to that island right now just the i mean the chinese suffered major losses not just because of the war hell even you know during the revolution they had to purge a lot of people too and china has in many cases engaged in wars that were entire that made no sense essentially like um anyone who knows looks in history right after the vietnam war when we left there um the Vietnam, the uh, Viet Cong basically mined a lot of the northern part of uh, Vietnam. And China decided we're going to move in there because we think we have a claim there. They sent a million men to their death because they thought if we send enough people, we'll eventually get through. Well, they all died. And they just, okay, we're not going to do that again. So to think that they won't because of the, the maybe like an economic problem or a manpower shortage, it's it's not really part of the thinking. It's we're going to do it, and we're trying to they're trying to find that moment that they can get it done right. Okay, so you you say kind of all all this stuff about like historically about China entering conflicts and all this stuff and. China entering a conflict to regain Taiwan. Uh, it's it's something that, in your eyes, and I'm sure a lot of other people, they feel that it's going to happen eventually. So something that that came up in some of the comments uh, that was that your article was posted, they were kind of basically saying, well. You're saying all of this, but you're not really offering any solutions. So what should the solution to the uh, China-Taiwan conflict be? I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> so um, I was someone who I respect deeply about this, and I asked them, like, what is the real way to handle this? Like they fully they're fully aware of the conflict of the issue and obviously you know like as libertarians we understand like we pretty much all libertarians recognize the sovereignty and independence of taiwan they recognize that they respect it they believe it's legitimate but we don't we won't step in we don't believe we should step in intervene because it could create a larger conflict so i get that and i can and i and i agree with that so i thought well what do we do how can the how can the U.S. help without starting a war? Um, one of the things, and actually, I remember I think the Mises Institute did a podcast that actually said this and said the continued work that we have done is we allow former military advisors and trainers that go to Taiwan to train their military in like U.S. tactics and such. Um, there, and we also like. Officially, unofficially, the U.S. does sell Taiwan weapons. 
um as a way to sort of kind of give them you know whether it's like i think it's like f-16 jets like i've, I've been to actually air bases in taiwan they buy weapons from france and the u.s um missiles jets uh, i don't know about tanks and such but and i'm not sure about too many naval things they do have some taiwan does have submarines um one thing taiwan doesn't have is nukes uh which is like the that that love they'll go all the way up to that point and they will you know they're not going to get nukes from anyone um and this friend thought actually recommended and thought you know you know it's the um the benefits might outweigh the consequences if a certain major power decided to give taiwan just a couple of nukes just so that chi it, it, as a deterrent to china making a move because not that we ne not that it's necessarily a good thing but we know that the way things are going in like north korea as horrible as things are there they have nukes and because of that it's it's a tough situation no one wants to make a move because we obviously don't want to activate mutually assured destruction, right? We don't want a nuclear war. Nobody really wants one. So if Taiwan had nukes, China would think twice before making that move. Another thing was too, is to allow for volunteers. So if Americans or people in other countries feel very strongly about defending Taiwan, they should be given the freedom to act independently, which is, you know, and as, as, as individuals, which most libertarians would agree, to go there and fight alongside the Taiwanese. Completely separate from their government's actions. Because then what are the... Now, of course, now in the current world we're in, that could complicate things further. Like, if a whole bunch of Americans show up in Taiwan, but they're not backed by the U.S. government, but then they're Americans and then they're former military or anything like that, what does that say? But then no but then it you know in the case of like Ukraine a lot of Americans went to go fight in the foreign legion for Ukraine. And as far as we've seen so far Russia isn't making this like they're not taking it as if US is secretly backing Ukrainians. So depends there's there's um uh another friend who was actually defending what I wrote said it's it's very much like Michael Malice's position on North Korea. There's no real solid solution that we can just give and and hope that it works 100%. There's a lot of different ideas. Um, my whole thing wasn't necessarily to offer solutions, more so to offer a perspective that I believe my you know peers were not considering. It was very much well the economics, the people, the the military stuff, you know, the current world climate. Like China has shown multiple times in recent and long time histories that they don't care that much about that. They will just do it because saves face. It's that honorable look. We'd rather look honorable and have integrity and follow through with what we do rather than act strategically to um, 
you know, in that, in those terms that we typically think about. So I guess to uh, try and expand on that, uh, talking about solutions, it seems like what you're saying is, um, and I guess, because you mentioned Michael Malice's uh, thing about North Korea saying, well, there's no real one solution to end everything. Everything about North Korea is going to be awesome tomorrow. You know, if we just offer them this solution or whatever, it's over. Yeah. Do you think that this is just going to be something that, you know, the whole, just kick the can down the road. It's going to happen eventually. We just, we're just going to try our best to make it to where, it's not going to happen during my lifetime or my children's lifetime. We're going to keep trying to make it prolong. So, yeah. So instability and dissident movements, uh, both through like the underground, uh, the underground Christian churches in China. Um, the underground church has actually grown such a degree um, that when I, so I was a, a minister for a time and I went over to Asia. Well, I guess in this case, back to Asia, but to countries I've never been to, to, um, speak to people, preach, stuff like that. Um, and, uh, one time I was in Thailand, I met a group of, uh, Chinese Christians. And it was interesting because I was thinking, wow, um, this is risky for you to be here. And I met with them, I talked with them, and I noticed, and from what I learned from them, there's actually a, a split in their church over like theological stuff, which is separate too. But basically, their church is so big as an underground movement that there's literally splits in their movement, um, which tells me it's a large enough group. I mean, over, over a billion people in that country, there's no telling exactly how many, but I've seen footage and pictures of their underground church where they'll go meet in secret areas. Granted, it's harder, um, especially in the cities for doing that. So it's probably more out in the country, but they'll go to like secret places, whether it's caves, uh, the forest or something and have church services. So there's the Christian side. There's also just political dissidents in general, like with the availability of the internet, like, you know, there's the great firewall, they call it in China that blocks off and censors the internet, but there's pe but obviously technology is catching up to that to work around that. There's people in China that know exactly what's going on in their country, but there's so few of them that they're trying to essentially get the information out there, get the, get the technology to other people to bypass the restrictions, to look at what's really happening, whether it's technology, whether it's creative ways of talking about things like, um, like the Tiananmen Square incident, there's ways that they talk about the Tiananmen Square incident without actually talking about it because the filters and everything censor that information. Because of all these things, giving Taiwan the tools and the resources without directly intervening or starting a war to prolong, to essentially, you know, you said kick the can down the road, but make it make it harder and harder for china to want to make a commitment to a war until the hope is the ccp is overrun that they basically because the ccp government the prc it's only been around since the 40s maybe a little before that it's not it's barely 100 years old and 
there's already this much political un- unease, especially now with now they're cracking back down on lockdowns. People are essentially more and more like there's more and more civil unrest. So the hope is, I would hope in my lifetime, maybe in another lifetime, the war maybe doesn't come and China just has its own revolution. And then they just don't care about Taiwan anymore. You know, whoever becomes, whether it's a more democratic or just not the PRC that takes over. Um, Some think it could be uh, sort of the billionaires of China will essentially step in the power vacuum and kind of create micro, you know, smaller Chinese countries in China, uh, whether it's a complete revolution of a completely democratic society. Um, or maybe Taiwan has a hand in that. You know, they're intelligence operatives to go in there and essentially aid in installing a new gut, well, aid in the revolution and in creating a new government that would be more beneficial to Taiwan. Or China just becomes West Taiwan. You never know. Well, it's uh, it's an interesting perspective, and I think it's it's definitely a complicated issue, and yeah, it's uh, definitely something to keep an eye on. Um, so I guess we'll uh, we'll end it there. Uh, thanks for kind of elaborating and and further explaining uh, what you were talking about in your article. Um, if you want to let people know where they can find you and your work, go ahead. Um, I mean, look, look, look me up, uh, Amos Joseph on Facebook. I have Amos Joseph Libertarian, just that's my page. Um, and that's where I kind of wrote everything. I'm on Twitter at Amos Joe. Uh, and I think, I mean, that's really where I am. Currently I'm, I'm doing stuff with the Libertarian Party of Minnesota. We're actually having a meeting on Monday to determine like what they want me to, you know, moving forward what i'm going to be doing um but my my big takeaway from this is this is merely just offering a, a a perspective i'm not calling for the u.s to get into a war i am not trying to sort of like it like start anything per se to say like oh you know forget the anti-war stance forget the anti-interventionist stance that we have as libertarians if anything I'm trying to be very honest with myself and my views and was having a frustration with my peers and their interpretation and perspective on the issue. And I think anyone should be, should like, even though we're already libertarian, right. And we have this sort of platform of principles. We have these first principles we follow. It wouldn't hurt every now and then to actively question them and not just adopt a position purely because we feel we're supposed to. Like a lot of our, pr- our principles can account for a lot of issues, but too often we tend to have a knee-jerk reaction to be against or for something purely because we feel, oh, I'm libertarian, so I have to believe this. Oh, I'm this because I have to be that, to believe that. It's not always exactly how our princip- even our best principles can really account for. And that's kind of what I was bringing forward was, Hey, I'm I'm a, I grew up in Taiwan, so I kind of know what's going on over there. Um, 
and I just felt like a lot of my peers weren't, you know, they being entirely honest, they didn't know what they were talking about. That's how it came across to me. So I wrote this to try to bring that forward instead of maybe going on a rant on Facebook or going on a, you know, picking fights with people. I did a little bit of that on Twitter, I'll admit, you know, a couple of F-bombs, a couple of, you know, what the hell are you guys on about? But then I wrote this to kind of like clear the air and offer my perspective so that people can at least consider it and think about it with that in mind, not to just completely change our 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 stances on the issue and just go all right you know Ames is from Taiwanese libertarian so we're gonna go to war now no 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 not at all so all right well thank you again for coming on and thank you for joining us here at the Hopitarian show and we'll see you at the next one 